Welcome to Visionaries. I'm your host, Jacob Wolf, an award-winning investigative journalist and the CEO and founder of Overcome. Twice a week, we welcome on some of the most successful and high-profile people in internet, gaming, and new media to ask them how they do what they do. Today's guest is Rosie Wynn, also known as Jasmine Rice Girl, the co-founder of FanHouse, a creator platform that is helping creators around the world monetize what they do. Rosie herself is a creator, and she started in college after having an incredibly touching and heartfelt life story of having her mother become disabled and having to scrap all the way through college while she studied at University of Pennsylvania to provide for her family. Through college, she started working on a bunch of different platforms, including Twitch, OnlyFans, and others. But she couldn't quite find what she was looking for when it came to the features on the platforms to help her avoid harassment and to also better monetize what she was doing. So she made one of her own. Partnering with a pair of Stanford graduates, Rosie created FanHouse, and now she leads its marketing efforts. For maybe those unfamiliar with the platform, and you'll hear her and I talk about it, FanHouse is a good mix of something like OnlyFans and Patreon. But unlike OnlyFans, and unlike Fansly, one of its competitors, FanHouse is only for safe-for-work content. There's no sexually explicit content on it, and creators on the platform range from people who are posting selfies and sort of interacting with their fans to people who are creating music. They recently launched a bunch of new music creator features. And overall, the platform is helping monetize creators of all kinds. So we wanted to bring on Rosie to get her take on what she's doing, why it's meaningful, and how Fan House is changing the creator economy. Before we do that, I wanted to welcome on Prime from my team to give some commentary on this episode after having listened to it together. Prem, what did you think about our interview with Rosie? I think anyone who's listening to this is probably going to also want to watch the the YouTube video. If it it's a really fun one, and it it unfortunately gets decently censored. Rosie is is not afraid of of being kind of brutally honest with with her experiences, which I think is is a really refreshing thing in kind of the the general creator space, especially a space that's a little bit more adult oriented. It was a fun, it was a fun interview because you, we never really expected to be in a space where, where we're having a guest that's as, as kind of open about like her DMs from, from very horny men. It's, it's really, it's really cool. Yeah. And for those listening, it, I guess this is a little bit of a, a funny uh, listener advisory a little bit. I, we, we are censoring out some of it because Apple Podcasts has pretty strict censorship rules. We are having to market explicit just based on the content. But sort of something that Rosie started doing in college, as she still does through today, is what I would describe as horny on Maine. She tweets her thoughts about sex and her sex life. And part of her fan house offering, because she is a creator on her own platform, is helping draft those tweets. Like all the ideas she doesn't actually post to Twitter that go viral. She's help posting those on FanHouse and letting people sort of help craft what she says. And some of them are like hilarious. You know, she she makes like a, a parody of the Avatar intro, like Avatar The Last Airbender intro is at some point as well. And she brings that up in the podcast. It's it's really interesting to think sort of how that brings people into what she's doing and then by extension the company, which we go through a little bit. And it's something that a lot of tech blogs, et cetera, that have co- covered FanHouse have talked about and even like talked to her investors about, many who are very supportive of that vision. Yeah, it's, I think for, for a lot of entrepreneurs, it'll be actually a really insightful episode simply because 
it's very clear that she she made a pivot as as someone who also graduated from Stanford and, and initially was going to do something very different from what I'm doing now. It's it's kind of reassuring, I suppose, and this is much more a personal thing to me, but it's reassuring to see someone go from I'm going to work in engineering or or in her case investment banking to I'm going to pursue something that I love. I'm going to do it because it it brings me a lot of satisfaction, but it also allows me to address some of the problems that I want to address. And and so that yeah. that's that's I think a thing that that founders and entrepreneurs can can gain from this episode and, and in general any person there is an an immense amount of kind of self empowerment that that comes from pursuing those passions rather than just pursuing financial stability and, and gratification i suppose yeah and what's really interesting to hear about and contrasting with the episode that we did with Ben Goldhaber last week is you know Ben was talking a lot about and i would encourage our listeners if you're only listening to this one to go back and listen Ben was talking about wanting to build something that they wanted to see. And unfortunately, I think Juke just had an incorrect calculus, which we go through in the episode, that you know, more or less, there just aren't enough people that want to see what Ben wanted to see and what his co-founder, Chris, and, and their team wanted to see. In this case, I think there are. I mean, plenty of people use OnlyFans, Fansly, Patreon, sort of all these other creator platforms. But a lot of them, as Rosie talks through, you know, when you're on OnlyFans or Fansly, people immediately assume that you're doing sexually explicit content, even in, if you're not. Like in her case, none of, none of what she's doing, she may talk about sex, but she's not posting you know, sexually explicit pictures, etc. And on Patreon, Patreon doesn't have that sort of the talking back and forth, like the, you know, the communication between fan and creator that kind of makes things like Twitch, etc. very successful in its own right. So hearing her contrast the two is really interesting. And I think that what she's built personally does have a lot of legs. You know, you, she, we asked her some questions in there about, about how many creators are on the platform and sort of what, you know, how many people have signed up for it, et cetera. And, and the stakes are also higher because they've raised $21 million in venture capital. So I, I really enjoyed this interview. I thought it was super insightful. We covered a lot of ground in it and, and it's hour. So hopefully everyone listening will enjoy. Yeah, man. And, Obviously, I'm, I'm biased, but it's it's always fun to to kind of hear you let get into your bag when it comes to being a, a tech journalist and, and getting into some of the nitty gritty, especially as it pertains to payment processing, because that's something that the OnlyFans fansly have run into. A lot of credit companies are very hesitant to even support doing transactions through those sites because of the sexually explicit nature of the content. And so getting to hear Rosie's perspectives on on towing that line with Banhouse in such a way that it's clear to to these credit companies that that's not what they're doing. They're they're more empowering people to make kind of more lighthearted or, or family friendly content. That in my mind that that signals that there are are there is a larger audience that can be using that platform, both as creators and as fans. And so now for our interview with Rosie Wen. Fan House is a creator platform where you can share can get followers. It's got a lot of similarities, I would say, to Patreon and OnlyFans and some of the others of its like, where you can 
gain followers, people can pay for access to your content, you can share them amongst them. Is that is that accurate, Rosie? Is that a valid way to describe it? How would you describe the company and what you're building? That's pretty good. It really depends on how much time I have, but <laughs> and what my what the person I'm talking to knows. But usually I, I'll say that it's kind of a combination of like Patreon and Discord, right? So I think FanHouse really combines creator monetization with community. So we enable creators to have tools like, you know, a paywall, gated, you know, exclusive content, along with, yeah, community features like house chats, like listen goals for musicians and so on. And where did the idea of that start? Where did the fan house idea start? I think there are a lot of things that go into the founding story that I care a lot about and are really important to me. But essentially, I'm a creator first and foremost, right? And I've been a content creator maybe for three years now. Twitter is my main platform. Um, I'm sure a lot of the people here know that. But I started Twitter in college. And this was at a time in my life when I was providing for my family. So my family grew up really low income. My parents never made more than like 10000 a year. Uh, and my mom single-handedly supported us for a long time until college, actually. She got run over by a car and then was not able to work anymore. And yeah, she's like permanently disabled now. And so I started providing for my family. And I did a lot of like work study, things like lab experiments. I don't know, all kinds of like hustles in college that you think a broke college student would do. I did. Uh, my handle is Jasmine Rice Girl, actually, because all I ate in college was like plain Jasmine Rice. All the money I would make, I would just send back home. All the money I got from school for like books or food or like housing, I'd send back home. But anyway, so fast forward <laughs> to senior year of college. Uh, that was when the pandemic hit us in 2020. That was my senior year. And um, if you guys don't know what happened to college students at the time was everyone got kicked off of campus. And so I lost the work study job and all these side hustles that I was doing to provide for my family. And I was very like, oh, crap. Sorry, can I curse on this or no? <laughs> okay, so I was very like, oh, sh like me, <laughs> right? Like I still need to provide for my family, but I don't have my work study job anymore. And there's not a single place that was accepting like new people in person, right? That's that, that was COVID when it first started. And so I really had to look online, right? And at the time I had maybe like 30,000 Twitter followers, which is a sizable, sizable amount if you're thinking of a room, but not a lot if you're thinking of like monetization, like brand deals don't give a f about you. If you have 30,000 followers on Twitter, like no one cares about you. No one is giving you any kind of money except what I found, the people that follow you. So at this time, I shared a lot about my story online and there were a lot of people that really resonated and really supported me, right? Like I had been making kind of, you know, Twitter content that were like a lot of jokes, a lot of like sex positivity, things that make people laugh. And I think I, I was giving something to people that they wanted more from. And when I talked about how hard it was to, I don't know, just do things like eat every day, I would have followers that would just memo me, you know, like $10 or like $20 for dinner. And that money, honestly, at that time really saved my life. And I think it really created a light bulb moment for me that was like, hey, as a creator, you know, maybe brands or sponsorships or whatever don't care about me, but I have followers that do. And so this feels really meaningful to me. And how can I tap more into that, right? And how can I make this two way? And it's not just you Venmoing me, but I can really bring you in as a part of my journey as a content creator and, uh, and a part of my content, right? And so I looked into a lot of platforms and I used every platform under the sun in every way. Like I use Patreon, I use Twitch, I use OnlyFans. I even did stuff like I had a private alt Twitter account that I would charge people to pay for. And I just tried every different way of monetization. And I think I really, through my experience, found what worked and didn't work. 
And honestly, most of the platforms I really just hate in some way or another, like OnlyFans was so bad for my mental health. It was so, there was so much harassment there. Patreon was just kind of boring. But (laughs) so I was like, I wish, I kept saying to myself and to my friends, I was like, I wish there was just a platform that did this better (laughs) and did this right. And I was very lucky that I met my co-founder, Koi, a really good friend that I met through Twitter, where everything starts. And Koi is a Stanford grad that was kind of just like, why don't we just build this platform together, right? Like you get the space, you're in it, you're living it, you're breathing it, and I have the skills to build them. And that's that's kind of how we founded Thanos two years ago. Sorry for rambling. <laughs> no, no, that was a good answer. I, you know, what's interesting to me about the platform and the people that I know that use it is is that interaction. You said in your answer that Patreon is boring. It <laughs> is. I agree. It feels very one way, which I think is like very different than most of the audience wants. And I think, and this is something we'll dive into maybe a little bit later, but OnlyFans in particular feels uh, like it's, I mean, its reputation is for not not for safe work and or not safe for work content. And so, you know, it's a pornography and everything else. Like that's that's what people know it for, even though there are safe for work content creators on OnlyFans. Mm-hmm. It, it carries the reputation and therefore the audience base that uses it to tends to act a certain way. And so I, I find it interesting. You kind of found this middle ground where it's like it has that level of like one to one interaction and in what y'all are doing, but it's not. Yeah, it's, it's not. Yeah, I mean, it is safe work. That is fan house to sell, right? Yeah, I think what we really saw is just that it's about like content creation, right? It doesn't have to be any one thing. It's really just about creators finding who their top fans are that want to support them, like no matter what. And I think that really taps into the concept of, right, like people in the creator economy talk so much about the 1000 true fans, right? But I fully, fully believe in that. And I think yeah, even if it's like 10 true fans or even one true fan, if there's only one person that really loves your music or really loves your art and wants you to succeed, like that's the person that will keep you going. And again, I, I really like experienced this firsthand because I was at this point in my life where I was like, I don't know how I'm going to keep providing for my family. And my followers gave me that answer, right? I, I really found this alternate uh, alternative path to success that was from your direct community. And like now, yeah, I have like something like 200,000 followers on on Twitter, right? But the number that's almost more meaningful to me is the number of people in my fan house. Because those are the people that I'm like, oh, they are there for me through thick and like thick and thin. Like they want to support me. They want to, you know, be a part of the journey. And yeah, to the interactive part, like it's things like, I don't know, I draft tweets, you know, in my fan house all the time with my followers. And that's not a behavior you'll ever see on like Patreon or, or OnlyFans because it, it wasn't built for that, I think Patreon, you know, even in the name itself, right? Like patrons of art, it's very like a mm-hmm. museum. It's like you pay $5, you get to see what exhibition is there for the month and then you kind of leave. And then of course, OnlyFans. I think I read a statistic once that 98% of content on OnlyFans is not safe for work. And obviously when that much of the site is one thing, that's what people are gonna compare it to. And that was very much my experience there. Even if I would say like, hey, I'm just here to do singing covers or hey, you know, I don't want to do a certain type of content and I draw my boundaries. People do not care. They just do not care. Yeah. I feel like OnlyFans as a platform is really kind of struggled to find what, what it is. I mean, we've seen like they've had issues with credit card processors because credit card processors don't want to deal with not, uh, not safe for work content more broadly. And, you know, they were going to scale back on it and then they were like, whatever, right? Like it, it was just too late and they found another way to do the same thing. It's it's an interesting time. I, I do want to ask you about sort of the, the target market here from a consumer perspective, because I find this really interesting. 
we've talked a lot on this show about parasocial relationships with mm-hmm. creators themselves and especially some of the more thoughtful people like Atrioc was uh, one of the early guests on this show. You know, he was worked at NVIDIA. He's now, you know, full-time co-founder of a creative agency that's producing events for creators, et cetera. Um, but is is a also a creator himself now, um, but comes from a professional background different. So like this, you know, he was more experienced when he became a creator, not like the many who become creators at very young ages. And, you know, it, parasocial relationships is always a really touchy subject because in, in a way it is, I feel like it makes influencers more valuable in the sense that like people trust what they care about you know like the a younger audience like aver- no, traditional advertising doesn't really work for them like a tv ad isn't what's going to sell them but if it's you or if it's someone else who they trust another creator that they trust endorsing something saying that they like it that's probably pretty meaningful and it's meaningful from a conversion perspective but i also feel like that can be dangerous in a lot of different ways too i uh, in in sort of you know especially for women uh, who you know these sort of creepy online men feel like they're connected to in a way they truly are not Walk me through the bounds of that because I think it, it's sort of bigger part of the actual user base of your your product, at least to some degree. Probably not all, but I'm sure you do have some people that are like that on the platform. Oh, I have so many thoughts on this topic, both just again from my experiences and especially, yeah, especially being a woman online and especially with the kind of content I put out, right? Like, again, I talk a lot about my sex life, right? And for... <laughs> And and that just invites a lot of people who think that that means they have access to my sex life, which is not the same thing, right? It's like, I am right. making a joke. I'm making a funny joke, first of all. And it's like there for you to laugh, not for you to then DM me and say, I mean, I could I could pull my DMs for you like right now and just read, I don't know, the first, <laughs> my third message just says titties. I have messages that says, it's me, your future husband. I have something that says, hello, I think I'm in love with you. I have one that says, you want to play games sometimes. I want to be the person that you How do I wife you? It goes on. Um, and I'm sure most women's DMs are like, DMs of big content creators always look like this, right? And to some extent, I mean, I don't know. I'm a big advocate of like shooting your shot. Like if you want to be friends with someone, message them. You never know how it goes. But a lot of, the, a lot of these do steer parasocial because it is very weird as a creative to be like, do you genuinely think that I would date you, you know, or have sex with you, a random stranger on the internet who I'm, whom I know literally nothing about. Like, and, and there is, I think how I define parasocial, you know, behaviors or relationships too, right? Is like, that is very much a one-sided, misguided and like false belief about your relationship with the person, right? And plenty of, plenty of people have this, have these relationships with creators. And that's why creators talk so much about it, right? Like, I am not your friend. And I think I have to draw that line every day too. Like there are people in my comments sometimes where like, they'll be like, Hey, why are you talking about being single? And you haven't given me a chance. And I'll reply with, with this, mm. this meme that I love, but it's like, th- this guy tweeted something that was like, I hate it when women say they're, they're hungry or like, or they're single, but don't want to date me. It's like saying you're hungry and you won't eat the hot dog that's lying outside on the street. <laughs> and I, and I <laughs> that all the time. And I'm like, you got to understand you're a, you're a stranger and I don't know you. Yeah. I don't want to be with you. And I think, I think again, so that behavior is not unique to any one platform. Like it happens to me on Twitter. It happens to me on Twitch. Uh, and I have to constantly redraw boundaries. And of course, yeah, it happens on FanHouse too. Like I made a post on FanHouse recently that was like, this is not a dating site. Like, don't try to fucking date me. That's weird. 
And I think like, again, so be, one, because I have those experiences, it is very at the forefront of like what we build, right? And really informs yeah. our product. It's like, hey, let's put in safety tools. So I will say FanHouse is one of the only platforms I can think of. I, I think it might be the only subscription platform that requires people to have a phone number in order to join, right? Because that alone gets rid of a lot of like harassment and like weirdos and like stalkers. Yeah. Right. And, and once, right. And once you like do anything bad and get banned, like you can't go and make a new account. We also take your credit card info. So that's linked to your profile. So it's like really like you and you can't make a new profile with the same credit card. So that's like one, right. One place we do that's like, Hey, you need to be a good, you know, community member if you're joining FanHouse. Other stuff we do is we have a lot of tools for creators to like set their boundaries, right? Like if you don't want house chats on, you can turn them off. Like you don't have to have that. If you don't want DMs on, you can turn them off, right? Because that was something that I really struggled with on OnlyFans was like all of my messages were, I mean, if you think my Twitter DMs are bad, right? Like my messages on OnlyFans were a hundred times worse than that. Like I had yeah, nightmares. probably very vile. Like, I know, exactly. I had nightmares about those. And it's like, there was no way to protect myself from that. And so I think we build in the tools for creators to draw their boundaries. But I think ultimately it, it really is up to the creator to let their the fans know what the relationship is right but again and i think it's in the name too like fan house and of itself like again you're here because you're a fan not a friend yeah. not a potential partner not a you're a fan of my content and if you're here because you want to support me you're totally welcome and if not then like i'm probably going to block you or you're going to see yourself out because you're not getting what you want yeah i want to talk about your twitter a little bit because i think it's really funny and it goes viral all the time and I'll, I'll give a little bit of context. I'm sure a lot of people in the space are familiar with you, but for the people <laughs> listening on AOD or VOD, maybe not. So your Twitter is what I would say is the definition of horny on main. And I, I find it really, really, really funny. I'll read a couple of the tweets and then I want to oh, reference God. the... Infor the infor I, and then I'll reference the the information feature about you because I'm an information reader and I actually think this it explained this kind of eloquently and funny, mm -hmm. and funny at the same time. So this past week, in the past week, you've tweeted things like, why is it called a cocktail? Is it because you want after drinking it? You tweeted, listen to your heart, suck his You had tweeted the uh, the sexual tension between you and a random stranger your age at the airport you look or walk eye contact with for half a second and trying to find one of, one of the more other, there was one I saw in like the past week from following you that was really, really funny too. Oh, I was going to name some off the top of my head so that I really Go like. Go so ahead. Like you're sure. kind of picking the mid ones. Like those are recent, but <laughs> some of, okay, some of my most proud work is um, if you're an Avatar The Last Airbender fan, Dan? Yes, yes, of course. Okay, okay. So my neck, my back, my pussy, and my crack. Long ago, the four nations lived in harmony. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I remember that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is what I actually tell people in real life sometimes and then they laugh and I, I get really proud. I also had one that was like, oh, reading porn and masturbating, call it literature. Is really bad really about There you go. Yes. Okay. Anyways. <laughs> yes. So, you know, I, I think you said it, you said it earlier, the sort of the difficulties being a, a woman influencer and mm -hmm. dealing with some of the harassment, et cetera. But certainly even in the business world, there are people that judge you, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And, and so the, the boldness of being who you are, I commend it first of all, but it's like, be who you want to be. Mm -hmm. and unexpressive and there was that passage that is your twitter cover photo from the information piece which is one would imagine silicon valley with a track record of underestimating and underfunding female founders wouldn't take kindly to a founder who tweets about her quote gorilla grip coochie 
close quote. But Wynn and her co-founders have been remarkably successful in the fundraising department, raising a $1.3 million seed round led by Morris Jr. and the chain smokers Mantis VC in May 2021, followed by a $20 million Series A in late 2021. And then it quotes one of your investors who says, it's so true to herself and it really showcases her personality. And that's what works for her in the market that she's building in. And so I want to use this to talk about a couple different things. One, I want to ask you how much of your Twitter is a marketing device and, and to draw people in? And how much of that is you just being funny because you're a funny person? Or both. <laughs> I almost want to say so little of it, like I intend as a marketing device. Because again, what is really important to me is being true to who I am. I think authenticity is one of my biggest values. And there's a bunch of like childhood trauma that goes into this that we don't need to know about. But it's just like when I have been true to who I am, I think it's really helped me and my family. And so, yeah, I mean, even before Fan House ever started, like my first viral tweets, like, and I can, and I can quote my very first viral tweet. It was when I was in Singapore in 2019. I hadn't had sex in a really long time. I hadn't gone on a date in a really long time. And then this guy asked me on a date and I was so excited. I tweeted in caps, like just got out, asked out on a date. I'm about to suck the f out of this boy's d And it got like, I don't know, like 7K, something like that. But like, that was my first batch of followers. And then I ended up doing this whole series of like days without sex jokes. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but it's stuff yes. like day 100 without sex. Like, I don't know, sat on the my like floor so that I could feel hardwood under me. Like stuff like that. Uh, but I was really good at it. And I had a new pun for every day. I did this for like 100 days. It was something really crazy and impressive. But <laughs> anyways, I've been, I have always been like this. So my tweets, I think are, are I mean, it's not, a hundred percent who I am, right? I care a lot about a lot more things than that, but it is something that I do believe in and I'm passionate about. Like I love sex. A lot of people do. And I believe that it's okay to talk about it. And, and one of my beliefs with Fan House too, right? Because Fan House is a creator company is I believe that being true to myself as a creator first makes us a better creator platform because I think that means we really get it, right? <laughs> and my role at Fan House is actually a really interesting role. I'm co-founder and creator. And really what that means is, yeah, like I, I devote a lot of time to content creation. I devote a lot of time to talking to creators, to understanding what people's problems are, what they need, what the feedback is, and then bringing back, that back to the team. And when I look at other creator companies, uh, yeah, I feel like they, they miss that. Like sometimes I look at teams where I'm just like, if you talk to a creator, you wouldn't be building this. And I think, I think a lot of people might, must think that about the platforms that they're on, right? Like we think that about... Twitter a lot. You know, I have said that about Twitch a lot. It's like, who is making these decisions? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and it's usually people that, you know, whose de decisions, it isn't really impacting, right? But I think everything that we do at Fan House, every feature that we build, you know, or even every bug that we have, like, I feel very strongly because I still provide for my family. My, right, my parents still don't work. I'm still kind of the single breadwinner for us. And like, we have a lot of debt, whatever. But yeah, my, I rely very heavily on like my fan house income still to provide for my family. And so, yeah, whatever we build, like that's kind of at the forefront is that, hey, this this is how this is going to impact me. And then these are all my friends I know that that's how it's going to impact us. And I think it really helps us inform like better decisions for our users overall. The other part I want to ask about that is exactly what it's talking about there. You know, they're 
that investor of yours that was quoted mm-hmm. in the information piece is very kind, obviously. And mm-hmm. and I think he's right. Like, it's nice to have exactly what you just said. Mm-hmm. Someone at the front of the company who's authentic, not only to yourself, but you are you are sort of the person you want it to be a part of Fan House, the type yeah. of person you want to recruit to be a part of the platform. It was built, as we've talked about for the past 20 minutes, built around your some of your personal experiences with some of your personal experiences in mind as a creator. Ultimately, though, that's not most of the venture capital people out there. And I'm sure as you all get bigger and the fundraising, you know, the fundraising has to get larger. And, yeah, you know, we've talked plenty yeah. about the recession in the economy here or at the moment. But as those rounds get bigger, you're, you're going to get to some institutions who think a certain way about that. And I want to ask you, like, do you does that concern you? Do you worry about that kind of what they think and, and if it could affect the company at all? No. So, and I'll say why. I think one, I think I'm a person with very strong convictions. I think I, I have like a strong moral code that I live by. And yeah, and I don't do things that I believe are like harmful to people, right? Or like bad for society. But yeah, talking about, you know, sex in a positive way is not one of those things where I'm like, I, I don't believe, I, I really yeah. don't believe people or women should be shamed or what, being horny. Like that's not a crime. <laughs> yeah. And I think if somebody were to judge me for that, that's probably not a person that I would want to work with. And so I'll, I'll give kind of another example here, right? That where I've gotten kind of in trouble, quote unquote, in trouble for my social media before, and it was in college. And this was even before I had a Twitter. I used to have a Snapchat where I post stories like to my friends, right? But it would be, I mean, really chaotic stuff. Just, I've always been this way. But it would be stuff like I'd go out drunk and then I'd come home drunk and then I'd be like, I'm going to shower with my clothes on in the bathtub because that sounds fun. And then I'll like, make a post about it. And then anyway, so I was rushing for sororities, which uh, as people might know, are very, maybe very high, you know, like, or like strict about certain things. And Mm -hmm. uh, I met people and they really liked me and they were all my friends and they ended up rejecting me. And the reason they gave me was that, yeah, my social media was too much and would not be like a good representative of their sorority. And I think I was very sad about it for a while, right? Because yeah, you're a freshman, you want to belong, you want to have friends. But then I really, yeah, looked inside and I was just like, well, do I believe what I was doing was wrong? And I was like, no, I'm fucking funny. Like people reply to my stories and they say it's fucking funny. So like, you're welcome for the content, first of all. <laughs> and then I was just like, yeah, I mean, if, if there are people who are not going to, like, and the other part was just like, well, this is me. All right. This is me. I am chaotic. I am funny. I like talking about topics that are taboo to people. And if someone doesn't like that, then I probably don't want to be in a group of people like that. Right. Yeah. And, and I think it, it just really comes to show, at least for me, that that decision was right because, I mean, yeah, this last year, right, I find myself on Forbes 30 under 30 for social media and no one else in that sorority is. So, so uh, I think those are the kinds of experiences I've had where it's like, I know I'm doing the right thing. And, and again, yeah, we have 20 million in venture funding from people that do believe in what we're doing and do believe that it's good we have a creator on our team that is really true to her word and authenticity. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, hopefully that continues, uh, truly, because, again, I find no harm in your Twitter. I don't think anybody really does, but there are <laughs> some people that, you know, that feel a certain way and think a certain way and not call it what it is, sexism. It's just, it's annoying. Yeah. No, so, I mean, and that's okay, yeah. too. Like, I'm a big proponent of, like, block things you don't want to see, right? Like, like if my tweets True. are like, yeah, like really gross to you and make you frown, like you can block me and I won't be offended. Uh, I just get really yeah. offended when people try to tell me how to live my life, right? Like they come in and they're like, oh, right. you're this or that with your life. And it's like, you have no idea who I am. First of all. Like you don't even know my first name. So don't give me advice. <laughs> yeah, fair. 
I want to ask you about the balance of being both mm. creator and executive <laughs> in, in a sense, because I, I struggle with this a lot. So for some context, you know, I run a production company between all of our contractors and team. We're about 15 people deep and I'm having to both run that business every single day to, you know, I'm solo founder. So I'm like in the, in the books, doing all the contract stuff, working with all the legal team, et cetera. But also like, you know, I am a producer, so I'm like actually having to do a lot of the creative work. And at the same time, I am also writing a Substack that requires probably about 20 to 25 hours a week. So I'm like 70 hours deep. And it is so hard to juggle kind of all the different things. Every founder has this problem. Mm -hmm. But I think it's unique to people who kind of have, like yourself, one, mm -hmm. one track career here and one track career on the other side. And they're both very equally important. So how do you find that balance? And, I'm, and have you struggled oh to find that balance too? Oh, every day. I'm struggling all the time. I think... I mean, honestly, I think a lot of this year for me was really characterized by by burnout. Like I, I would remember like maybe for like at least six months on end, anytime I went somewhere or like I, I met someone in person or like a friend texted me and they asked, how are you? My response was just like, I'm stressed and I'm tired because I don't, yeah, I don't believe in really saying I'm fine or lying. But, but yeah, it was, <laughs> there's a point where I was like crying like at least once a week or maybe like every day <laughs> just from how tired I was. And yeah, no, it's it's tough, right? It's like, I don't even know how many hours I'm putting into like, what is quote unquote, like fan house specific work. But in a in a way, it, it all ties again, right? Like, well, if my content creation is bringing people to my page, which brings people to fan house, or like it, right, like I'm meeting new creators, which then end up on fan house, like, everything kind of ties together. And then, yeah, and vice versa, like you said, right, like, these are two things that are equally important, and I'm equally passionate about. It gets really hard. I think, I think I have ideas all the time that I can't see through, especially as a creator, because I don't have the time for it. Or like, I don't know, like I can't get partnered on Twitch to save my life because I have I have freaking like 300 concurrent viewers, but I'm not consistent enough with streaming because I can't be right. I work all day right, and then exactly. I have no idea which days I'm going to, you know, end early or be free or have energy. I have no idea. I like every time I stream, it's like at that moment where I'm like, OK, I'm free now. I can stream. But yeah, I've, I've gone rejected like three times because they're like, you need to stream more. And I'm like, I can't stream more. <laughs> this is all I have in me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that said, I feel lucky that it's like, I get to do something that is so rewarding, right? That I'm so passionate about. That like a lot of the times the hours don't feel like work, right? Like when I get to like meet someone the first time or talk to them or like help someone, you know, get started on a fan house and then see, you know, how it's like changing their lives. Like that is so, so meaningful for me. And that, like that makes everything worth it right but to your point i mean i'm actively trying to figure out all the time like what is the right balance and i have a really supportive team luckily at fan house especially my like co-founding team and I've, I've shared this stuff too where i'm like hey honestly guys like when i am working all day and then i'm going to like meet creators or go to events or go to parties like that's exhausting and then i end up just not having any time like it's like almost like you know like mm -hmm. 9 a.m to like 3 a.m <laughs> and i'm like you know, can 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 I offload some things here? And they've been so receptive to that, and I I'm really appreciative. I want to ask a couple of different questions about the platform more broadly. I so first, I'd be curious about how many creators have you had to estimate? Do you think are on FanHouse at the moment? I think we have something like 1,200 active creators, so like monthly, and then something like over kind of 4,000 creators lifetime. And how many people do you think are on FanHouse roughly from a user base perspective? People that are sub fans more or less i'm not the numbers person i could text koi and koi would know um yeah no i think it's like in the database which i don't monitor sorry no worries and if you had to 
guessed, again, this is all anecdotal. I'm not expecting you to have all the numbers. How many people on the platform, or how many creators on the platform are, uh, how do they identify if you had to break them out by gender in particular? Most of the people on Fan House right now are female. And a lot of them, I would say, are like Gen Z, like 20 to 35 age range. And then all a lot of them currently are like Twitch streamers or like Twitter personalities. And so for you, what what is scale? Like what do you, you know, obviously $21 million in venture funding, et cetera. Uh, that's, that comes with a lot of expectations in mm-hmm. terms of like, what, what does successful scale look like to you? And how do you get there in your opinion? Uh, the, the question that every founder asks themselves every day. Yep. I mean, for us right now, like growth is obviously really important, right? Like how can we find new creators to put on fan house? And I think for us, it's been exploring a lot of other verticals of creators that we don't have. And like, what kind of creator is missing something that Fanhouse can serve? So very recently, actually, we've been building a lot of features for musicians. We did a lot of user research. And we, I mean, yeah, musicians are one of those types of content creators where like, one, they're getting paid dog shit, And like, labels are exploiting them, taking advantage of them. And like, they don't know who their top fans are. And they're just constantly like trying to throw, I don't know, spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks, right? Because yeah, you just, I mean, all the incentives are like misaligned across these platforms for musicians. So it's like, right, they need to find who their top fan base is and they need tools to help them monetize and to grow. And so we've been building things like, I mentioned like listen goals earlier, right? So that's something we built where like a musician could drop a song into a listen goal, post it on, post it on fan house. And then what, and they can set a goal of like, help me get 10,000 streams on this song, right? This new song I released. And their fans can listen to it. And every time they listen to it, fan house would track who is listening, how many times they've listened. And then that bar goes up. So you, you would know if your fan house helped you reach this 10K and then maybe I don't know, release the music video. You'd also know which fan contributed to that goal the most, right? So then you'd be able to know, oh, this person listened to my song 500 times. I should thank them or yeah. I should. Yeah. So again, back to identifying top fans, growing, and then monetizing things like tip goals or community goals are, are a thing we have. And then we've also built things like Spotify wall integration. Right. So like Fanhouse, most creators right now use our paywall. That's like $5 to subscribe or $10 to subscribe. But Spotify wall is something interesting where you can pay to subscribe or you can link your Spotify account. And if you have an artist in your top like 50 artists on Spotify, you get to subscribe for free. So it's a way for like, again, top fans to just verify that they're a true fan and be able to join. So that's something that's kind of a new market we've been really exciting about. And we've been getting kind of like new small musicians on to try the product. But yeah, sorry, it's an answer scale. So that's like, yeah, finding new markets. And eventually, I mean, I want Van House to be a product that works for like everyone, right? That's a creator in, on the internet, especially when we're progressing towards a time where like, I don't know, maybe everyone becomes a creator someday and everyone needs to monetize, right? And what is like the go-to tool for that? And yeah, a part of being a venture-backed company is right, like you want to grow, you know, month over month and be able to raise again. And I mean, eventually, fingers crossed, become like a unicorn, right? And yep. And, and be really stable and not have to worry about, I don't know, whether whether or not you're going to exist in a few years, <laughs> which is a scary thought. Yeah, I think this is something in, w- in which we can relate. And so I want to ask you about it. You know, you mm-hmm. you talked, you mentioned throughout this pod and you've talked about on Twitter being from a lower income background, having a mother who became disabled during your time in college. And the I can relate in that a lot. And the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, I'm I'm the son of a single mother who didn't mm-hmm. make a whole lot of money. I like got out and dropped out of college and went and became a journalist and got mm-hmm. hired at ESPN six months later or 16 mm-hmm. months later. And now I am a solo founder. And I think mm-hmm. that 
for people like us, the people who don't come from a whole lot, and now we're in this like founder journey, it it can be even it adds an extra level of stress. It's not like we are trust fund kids that there's something to fall back on back there. Like our our success is directly correlated not only to just the success of our companies, but the success of ourselves, our families, everything around us. Talk to me a little bit about that, like and and how you how that changes the way you think as a founder. It's a tough question. So it's interesting because I, I think I get this misconception a lot from people that follow me that I'm really rich or wealthy, right? Because I don't know, because we raised $20 million in funding. That means I'm rich now. And I like, I wish, <laughs> like, I promise you, I f-ing wish, but that's not the case. Like I, I have a salary that really goes all to my family and to debt. And then I don't really have much else, but it's, it is really scary. I think not a lot of people know this, but before I started Fan House, I was actually so I had those couple months in college, right, where I was like, oh, crap, no money. And I tried stuff. And then during the summer, I started playing around with kind of the ideas of Fan House. And then I started my full time investment banking job, which was what I had accepted um, my sophomore year of college, because I was like, OK, good paycheck. That's what I need for my family. And for about six months, I actually worked on Fan House and investment banking at the same time, which was crazy. I don't even know how I did it. I don't think I slept like at all because it was like like 80 hours of banking till like 2 a.m. And then I do like Fan House after I got home. From like two to four. <laughs> but I like loved it so much that I, I really wanted to. And I think by doing both at the same time, it really gave me, I mean, like a direct comparison of like, wow, like I enjoyed this, you know, the fan house works so much more than I do, you know, this job that's just giving me a paycheck. And like, yes, the pay is nice. And like, yes, it provides for a lot of security that my family needs. But I really sat down and I thought about it. And I was like, if I lost I mean, yeah, if I lost, if I quit my banking job and I had no money, right? And Fan House just, right, we, we don't pay ourselves. We don't do anything. And I have to really scrap and stress about money again. I just thought that I'd be happier than if I had stayed at banking. And I like went to my mom and I was like, mom, I like want to talk to you about something. And she just knew. She was like, you want to quit your banking job, don't you? And I was like, yeah. And, and yeah, so now, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think about that alternate world a lot, actually, because I would be much more financially stable if I had stayed in banking and if I went PE. Like, I, I actually think about, I was like, if I stayed that route right now, I'd be having like a PE job making like 400K or something, <laughs> which I'm definitely not making with Thanos. And I'm still, I don't know. Yeah, I'm still struggling a lot. Sometimes months and whatever. Uh, yeah, I'm still struggling a lot. And but But it's like worth it to me. It's just like, I don't know. I, I sit with myself and I'm like, is what I'm doing meaningful to me? Yes. You know, is it making a positive impact for people? Yes. And am I happy? Yes. And when I answer all those questions, like nothing else really matters. Like everything else is kind of just, I don't know, just, just another like stair to climb, I suppose. And I, right. I guess if this is even a good analogy at all, but maybe I feel like I'm picking a, a path that has like you know, it's like a longer flight of stairs. Like, I, I don't even know where the top is, but I do know that when I make it to the top, it's like more beautiful than if I picked, you know, a shorter flight of stairs. And that's just kind of the life I chose for myself. And I, I stick with that. But it is, it is very hard and scary. And I always am afraid of failure because if Fan House is over, like, okay, I won't have a job, then it's going to really suck. But I, I'm, I'm also confident in my ability to like bounce back. Like, I've been through worse in my life. And, and I'm here now, so I think we'll be okay. To continue on with your stairs analogy, <laughs> it, uh, every, every every single stair is meaningful in its own way, too. And I think that I think that's what I like of being a founder now for two years is I, mm. like everything. Like you know, people may not care about it outside, but like the the growth, the internal growth I've had being that, like 
I appreciate every single step, right? Like, and, and all of that growth as a person. And that's not something you get when you're working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did almost five years at ESPN. That was not things I was getting doing that, right? Like, not things you were getting doing investment banking. Like, it, oh, you know, absolutely. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm so, so thankful that I got to do this. And I'm so thankful to everyone that has allowed me to get to do this with my life. Like, it's, yeah. I mean, the kind of, like, I definitely have the highest highs and the lowest lows as a founder, but I, I mean, every single thing, I would do it again every day. Couple different questions, both about the platform. One, you all have sort of limited yourself to safe for work content. Mm. And, and I want to ask why. I think, when we founded FanHouse, like again, from my experiences, it was just that that was what we felt like was missing in the market, right? Like if it was an adult platform, like there were plenty actually, like between OnlyFans and like, I mean, 20 others, like just for fans, like Friss, like, uh, yeah, like there were so many available that I had looked at. And honestly, like, I think they did a pretty good job. Like, I think they, I mean, I, I think OnlyFans was doing a better job than we could have as like a new startup with that, right? Like if OnlyFans is dealing with Amex and the, you know, whatever payment processors, like what is a tiny startup going to do to like figure that out? And I think we were honest mm-hmm. with ourselves that like, I don't think, yeah, we can do this better. Adult payment processing is very, very complicated and tricky. Like even with FanHouse, a safer work platform, we actually have a lot, a lot of issues all the time with subscriptions, right? We use Stripe to process payments and Stripe has very strict terms against adult processing. We're on the app store and Apple, Apple, by the way, Apple has its own whole, like, yeah, I don't know, jungle of rules around everything. And you know, they're 30% tax. And then we use like Cloudinary to host content and Cloudinary all the time will flag content, like even stuff that is like, like stuff where people are clothed, like get flagged as not safe for work. And then, and yeah, and then they'll they'll be like, hey, if you don't get rid of all of this, we're going to like pull your platform and you can't host any like media. Like we run into those things all the time, even as a safer work con- uh, platform. And so it's really, it's just really tricky. And I don't, and I think just honestly, like we don't have the team or the resources or the tools to like commit to being an adult platform because it really is a commitment if you want to go down that route. But that said, like, I think what our team was passionate about and what I was passionate about was again, like not the OnlyFans alternative because I tried OnlyFans and I was just like, I really didn't like that. That's not what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to do was again, like, how can I draft tweets with the people that like my tweets? <laughs> and there was no platform for that. So that's what we set out to build. Yeah, it's more casual. And to your point about like sort of the, the bar that exists, I think a lot of people don't know this, but the, the porn industry has some of the best engineers and mm-hmm. lawyers that you can find among any industry. Like they are Tibbity, tibbity the top because they have to innovate all the time. Like live video streaming services, by the way, were innovated no. in the porn industry before Twitch. Like exactly. That was, Twitch and, learned a lot of lessons from them. Yeah. yeah. And because there's so much money, I mean, it's so lucrative that like they are able to afford like really good engineers mm-hmm. too. The hiring market is tough, man. Like it is hard to find. Engin- it took us like a year to find like a design, a designer. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a rough, rough market, but but yeah, like Pornhub has some of the best engineers that I've met. It's insane. You mentioned the Apple text, and mm. I've seen your tweets about it. I've covered this a lot. So for, for context for the, those unfamiliar, 
If you are a app on the App Store and you use Apple, you're required to use Apple's payment processors. And there is a big fight and pushback to get rid of this requirement and mm-hmm. some people that have, have done a workaround. Mm-hmm. And there's an ongoing lawsuit that just resumed in the appeals court um, mm-hmm. between Epic, uh, Epic Games, the creators of Fortnite, and, mm-hmm. and Apple, who are in a fight because Epic in, put in through a, a sort of like flash patch or whatever you want to call it, very last minute patch, the ability to buy V-Bucks in Fortnite through another payment processing system that was not Apple's. And Apple knocked Fortnite off the App Store last summer for doing so. They've been in court for more than a year. And uh, now they're, you know, whatever happens in this court case is the big thing. But the reason that so many people and the reason raising it are frustrated with this is that Apple takes a 30% haircut off of your revenues. They've scaled it down a little bit for apps that make under a certain amount of money. But for the most part, it does affect a lot of places. You know, Rosie, you've spoken up about it, and as have many other companies that sort of formed this coalition. It, for for someone who's running, you know, you're not Epic Games. You don't have the sort of financial resources that Epic Games does to, mm-hmm. to go litigate this or go kind of be up Apple's ass in, in mm-hmm. Silicon Valley and try to fix it. What have you found sort of the meaningful way? Because getting a user to kind of go to your website and do it, which benefits you, which benefits the creator, et cetera, more, is not as convenient as just subscribing to them via the app. Yeah. So, yeah, how have you worked around it communication-wise, I guess? It really, really sucks because Apple put in, puts in rules. And, and I'll just re-explain Apple 30% and like in-app purchase really quickly for people that don't know. And there aren't, you know, a lot of my followers aren't really techie either. And I always try to explain things in really simple ways, but it's like, right. Imagine there's a fan host creator and their subscription price is $5, right? And you can pay that. You can totally pay that normally because fan host uses Stripe, right? So you could click the subscribe button and it's processed through Stripe, which takes like, I don't know, like 30 cents or something very reasonable off that purchase. And, and then you're able to subscribe for the creator. What happens suddenly is Apple is now like, hey, we want a cut of this thing that has nothing to do with us, that we don't facilitate anything. But because we exist and you're on the App Store, we want 30%. And I'll remind everyone that FanHouse takes 10% of transactions, right? So creator makes $5, we make $4.50. Apple now wants, God, what is my, I should have done $10. Okay, let's say $10, creator would make $9, we take $1. Now, Apple is like, we want three dollars from that so where the hell does three dollar come from and if it comes from the creator imagine 30 percent of all your income is just gone now like let's say right if you sell flowers for a living like someone is making you give them 30 percent of all that money so it's really it's really really unreasonable it's really exploitative and it's also very just like illiterate in terms of how creator economies work because that's not what they like apple doesn't do this to uber drivers they don't say like oh if you you know, make a ride, then now we get 30% of your ride because they understand. Mm-hmm. So for Uber, at least, or right, like I think more is still in-person facilitations. They understand that transactions don't work that way when it is one-to-one. But when it comes to online platforms, Apple still doesn't get it, frankly, or maybe they do and they don't care. But what we've had to do with FanHouse is we had to implement coins. So what you can do is you can buy coins on the web. So like 100 coins is like a dollar. But in app, a hundred, it's like 30% more of that. So like mm. you have to pay more in order to get the same amount of coins because in, in that way, so we charge, yeah, we upcharge the end consumer because we really don't want the creators getting less of their income because again, we know how important this is to people's livelihood. But it still sucks because now people, like consumers that don't have a lot of money have to pay more 
or like they're paying more and the creator isn't getting any of it and it or they're not paying and then that affects the creator income. So that just sucks in so many ways. But what sucks about communication is that Apple doesn't let you communicate to your users. They don't let you communicate to your users. Like in the app, you're not allowed to tell people that they're paying an extra fee. We get emails all the time that are like, hey, why is this stuff so expensive? And it's like, it's Apple. And you can't tell them because if you do, Apple kicks you off the app store, which is like, can we admit like kind of a a monopoly, right? Yes. (laughs) Uh, Like you can't, you really can't have, have an app without being on the app store. And they know that. And so that's why they implement these rules. And yeah, you can't have links. You can't really do anything. All I can do is, I don't know, make a Twitter post. Like you you can only talk about it off right. of Apple or send an email. And come on, who is reading all of our tweets or who's sending emails? Like we are posting about it all the time and people don't know because all they know when they're in the app store is that one price and you can't tell people anything about that price. So it's it's really awful. And I think a lot, a lot of creator platforms are hurt by this or impacted by this, right? Like if you're a Twitter user that uses like Twitter super follows, yeah, you're only seeing like 70% of your income. And almost all of it is going to Apple. Twitter barely takes any of it. So it's, I don't know, it really, really sucks to see like both as a founder and as a creator, like I'm angry about it all the time, like every day. And yeah, and and like you said, like big companies have to bow down to Apple essentially, because they're a trillion dollar company. And again, you can't have an app without the App Store. So like even like Spotify, Epic Games, like Patreon, like every company, Reddit, Twitter, like every company has tried to fight Apple on this. And when we were going through this with Apple, every investor that we asked is like, don't even fight Apple. Like, don't, you know, get taken off the app store. Like, just do whatever they tell you to. And I mean, I don't know, like, again, I am who I am and I'm going to fight for what I believe in. And we took the opposite route and I made a whole tweet thread. If people here haven't read it, you can search my tweets for like hashtag Apple. But I had a tweet that said hashtag Apple that went really viral. All the executives at Apple saw it. And literally the next day we got a call from Apple. And I think we made I think we made a lot of noise at that time about this stuff and you know generated a lot of awareness. But ultimately at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, it's like dropping, I don't know, like a, a coin into the ocean. It kind of gets lost. But here's what I will say is I really do believe in the power of numbers. And I think the more people that are aware about this and like, I don't know, push Apple to change, I think they eventually will. They just don't feel that pressure right now. Um, but they felt enough pressure right from this one tweet thread to give us a call the next they day. Give me a phone call. Yeah, yeah and yeah, give exactly. us like a six-month extension. So like if one tiny startup can do that, I mean, really imagine what all of us can do together. So yeah, I think, I think it's going to have to change eventually. Like it's just not going to work with these times and it's not going to work for people and and more and more people are angry every day. You mentioned your creator split there. It's 90-10, 90 creator, 10% you all. It is one of the cheap or one of the the best for the creator, cheapest for the company of any of the ones that I've seen. I think Substack is maybe the only other that is 90-10 in sort of creator. And we've seen some platforms get more aggressive on their creator spend. Twitch obviously just said that they're going to start eliminating their 70 30 deals with a lot of their higher end creators that they've signed these preferential deals with. Mm-hmm. Once they've crossed the hundred thousand dollar in threshold, uh, threshold of income, Twitch is going full 50 50. And you know, live video service is expensive, but that shouldn't necessarily be the creator's fault. And so, I want to ask you about the balance there because obviously, the service y'all are providing, you like you have to figure out how to make a margin on this thing eventually. And 10 percent is extremely small for a company. It, walk me through the balance of like you know, being kind of fair and, and giving back to your creators, but also doing what you need to do to kind of, you know, 
your fiduciary responsibility. No, that is a tightrope to work on all the time. I think, I mean, I think basically what we believe is that those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive things, right? Like you can do right for your users and creators while also being a profitable business. They're not inherently at odds because, right, if your users are happy and they're staying on your platform, then that's profitable for your business. And I think our take rate is one of those things where we're like, hey, what is, you know, fair for what we provide and the tools that we provide and, you know, will be good for our creators and, and will still keep us running, right? And, and I think, again, we chose to be venture backed for a reason too, because we wanted to have that money at our bank in order to like hire engineers and hire out a team <laughs> on a 10% take rate because we could have, have done that on our, our own. So it's, it's definitely a trade-off. I don't know. I, I really fully believe in just giving as much to the creator as you can. Like, I mean, if we ever do live streaming right, or something that costs more, like maybe we do charge more for those, those services. I don't know. But I do know, again, just present day where our platform is at, like 90-10 keeps us running and it makes creators happy. And that's enough. Well, we're going to start taking a couple different audience questions. We got a few in um, and I want to get you out relatively on time. This person wants me to read it, so I will read this question. From IndieFold, this is, how did how did you go about establishing trust with creators when you guys first started with Fanhouse? Yeah, I think this kind of goes back to the conversation about like, right, I believe that I need to be a creator first to understand creators. And I think that alone really fosters just like goodwill and trust with people, right? Like when I'm going out and meeting a creator for the first time, I actually what they see, right? Like if someone's going to my Twitter, what they see first is not even that I'm a founder, it's that I'm a creator. And that's all of my content too. Like I rarely, I mean, yeah, sometimes I tweet about the cool stuff and like tech things, but that's like one out of maybe 10 posts. Like the other nine is really just like content. <laughs> and uh, when, when you see someone that's, you know, like you and doing what you, you know, doing what you do, I think that establishes trust on its own. But I also put a lot of time and effort into, you know, building trust too. One, I mean, I genuinely love creators. I love connecting with people. But yeah, like I have dinners and hangouts with people like creators, like all the time, right? A lot of our first users on the platform and how we grew so quickly were that they were just my friends. Like they were creators that I had known for years, right? And the second I was like, hey, I'm building a platform and I think this would work for you. I mean, the trust was there. The trust was there to make them download the app and get on and, and you know, believe in me. And then, of course, like, I mean, we're lucky that it also worked for them. And then they started telling their friends. But but that's, yeah, kind of how that trust is established. It doesn't, it doesn't, yeah, come out of nowhere. Really, I think, at least for me, like, I've been building it over years, right, of being a creator and, like, getting to know people and, and being a genuine person with people. Good answer. Yeah, it's, it's super important that... Again, we've talked about it throughout this entire podcast, your ability as a creator to be authentic to the product that you were trying to create, right? It's when you're when you're a content creator number one, it's a little bit easier to uh, <laughs> yeah. tell people on it, right? So yeah. the next question we have is from Yipsy. Hi Jasmine and Jacob. This is for Jasmine. What's the biggest lesson you've learned in starting Fanhouse? Ooh. Oh man. There I, I'm just there are so many running through my head. I think it really has to do I think the hardest thing that I've struggled with really like building out a team where right? I've had, yeah, no skills in that. I'm, I'm really good at like creative things and content and marketing, but like hiring is really, really hard. And like, there's no, I don't know, so much of it just feels right. It's almost like dating, 
if, if that is a good analogy for people. And then you understand how hard, because you understand how hard dating is, right? Like going out, finding the right person, finding how they are compatible with you and gel with you and are able to build something with you <laughs> is really hard mm-hmm. because they are definitely one talented people, right? Like there could be like, again, the analogy for dating, like there could be attractive, smart people that you just don't vibe with. And that's the same with hiring. Or there could be people that say they're one thing and then they're not. Which happens with hiring. Or there are people, right, like with, you know, who might seem really good on paper. Like, you know, we've we've hired people with like years of experience or come from like big companies. That's really like, yeah, like really don't work at a startup because they have no idea how to like be scrappy or be resourceful or like, you know, move fast. Uh, and so we've hired or I have hired so many people that I thought would be good fits. And I mean, it really ended up being terrible. Um, and, and I'll also take a lot of responsibility here too, right? That like, you know, part of it is also, I probably wasn't the best manager. Like I was mm-hmm. 23 out of college <laughs> trying to train and manage people for the first time. And a lot of, a lot of the thoughts in my head are just like, you know, I, I like, I struggle a lot with like getting things down on paper and, and trying to communicate the same thing to someone. Like people ask me all the time, like, oh, how do you do it? Like, how do you tweet? What's the secret? And I'm just like, I couldn't even explain it. It's just like, it's just a thing. It's just a feeling, right? It's just like, it's just like a moment of like, oh, I have this thought and here's how to words it in these ways that'll like resonate with people. And then I'm going to send it out to the world. But obviously that doesn't work with a team that like really needs to understand what you're thinking and be on the same page. So I've had so many problems with this. And um, yeah, our team, like I've been I've done like executive coaching to figure it out and like learned a lot of different ways to like communicate to people, especially people, I don't know, double your age, right? That you have to manage Mm -hmm. that like that's a completely, you know, different dynamic that's hard on its own. But yeah, hiring is is hard. And then to that, that, it's not like firing is hard when you find out that someone is the wrong person for you, right? Like, again, the dating analogy, like breaking up is really hard. People get angry. People curse at you. And then, and then you just have to keep moving as if, right? That didn't happen. But it's like it's like multiple people at once. At, at least with dating, usually it's like one person to deal with at a time. <laughs> but with a startup, it's like it's like I don't know. It just always feels so exponential in how how many like new things that you have and how many problems you have as you scale. It's like never ending. <laughs> That's all for our show. If you enjoyed this episode of Visionaries, you can find more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, please give the episode a rating and a review. It really helps other people find the podcast. Special thanks to Prem Thotamkara and Sammy Daig for helping with this episode. We'll be back this upcoming Friday with an untraditional episode doing a little bit of the recap of some of the reporting work we've done here over the past few months, parsed in with some discussion between Prem and I. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We hope you have a great Thanksgiving.